Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Sex Life Before Bed. I'm your host, Rebecca Nava. And uh, my guest today is Rick Goodwin. Hi, Rick. Hello. <laughs> um, Rick uh, runs, uh, you started running a project called The Men's Project, um, for which ran for 16 years. And now you are, uh, what's, what's your title? Uh, that's always a question around here. Clinical services manager would be one of one of my titles. Also, the principal of men and healing. Okay. Now you've won a number of awards. One of which was the uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health National Recipient Award in twenty seventeen. This is true. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and uh, you were quoted um, in one article saying. Um, I've had lots of talks with ministry officials, lots of talks with our MPP on this matter, but it didn't go anywhere. And I think it's about men. Does that ring a bell? Uh, I could very well be something I've said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what Men in Healing does and um, maybe about that quote about why are men unique or why, why are why is this issue being ignored? Sure. Okay. So let's start off with the men in healing. Yeah. Uh, men in healing is a collaborative practice, essentially a, a small mental health clinic for men. Uh, we work on a variety of issues, though we're and while most of our work is individual therapy uh, for guys, we're probably most noted for our group programming that we offer, and that fundamentally is trauma recovery. Uh, anger management, and a third program called Emotional Integrity. Um, so it's group psychotherapy. Uh, we have a collection of about eight therapists who work with us in various ways and levels. Um, we have a part-time administrator. And apart from the clinical services we offer, uh, we also do training to other communities, other organizations, First Nations, uh, what have you on issues of concern to men and their families, particularly around mental health. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially the work we do here, which is not that dissimilar to the work we did for many years called the Men's Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Men's Project was a provincially registered uh, charity, nonprofit uh, organization that had 16 years of government funding, mm-hmm. yet the Ministry of the Attorney General provincially uh, pulled out their funding, which led to its demise. And that, well, that led to the demise of the Men's Project. That's the day following that is when we started up Men in Healing to continue the work. Yeah. So that's who we are now. This notion of, well, talking to all these politicians and we didn't get a response because of the issue of men primarily involves our flagship program, which is abuse recovery, trauma recovery. Um, We're most known um, to address issues of sexual violence, sexual um, trauma with men, where we're looking at, from what we know of the stats, at least one in six men have experienced that as children, maybe one in eight men, maybe more, experience sexual assault as adults. Um, so those are real, those are big numbers. I think that we clocked nationally that it would involve about 3 million boys and men across Canada. <clears throat> Still, uh, the issue of sexual violence, what comes to people's minds is that this is an issue that affects women and girls. Um, we still have that legacy in our thinking. There's reasons for that, um, but it's still with us. And so fundamentally, Arguing for the merits of a publicly funded service for victims, for trauma survivors. The, 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 the phrasing that we use often is that we, we still live in a society that um, uh, considers victimhood or feminizes victimhood in the sense when we think of victims, we're talking about girls and women. And it's also, we still also suffer the masculinization of, uh, of perpetration. 
Mm. So we think the offenders in our society are invariably males. Um, and if that is the dominant lens of understanding, then government does not support uh, the mission that we've had over the years. And I think that did lead to the funding demise we experienced. And, um, and we can find many examples to support that, that analogy. Mm. So there's a gender, the gender issue um, comes into play. It's kind of really um, outdated and incorrect notions of who people are and how they, what they've been through and what they're allowed to do. So, um, yeah, I think that's really unfortunate. I think it's really unfortunate um, that that's kind of the way that it's been framed. And uh, one thing that I've read is that for, for people who, who are victims, it often takes decades for them to come forward. Mm. Have you found that, um, that that's the case? And can you speak at all to what factors actually help people get here? Sure. So if we just talk about the sexual abuse of boys, uh, the average age of sexual abuse uh, is between nine and 10. A couple of years ago, we did a study uh, over the years who of the men who attended our abuse recovery program which is also called men in healing, just to confuse things. And the average age of men coming into treatment here is 45. So, well, I mean, that's about three and a half decades um, of suffering and essentially needless suffering. <clears throat> now, those men may have been in, had points of contact with um, elements of society, elements of the helping professions. These men may have gone through addiction treatment. They may have been in conflict with the law. They may have been involved in the psychiatric system. Um, but in terms of putting up their hands, saying that they were sexual abuse survivors and they need help on that issue, um, we're witnessing this age of 45. Um, and that, that seems like a tremendous shame. And what um, uh, all that suffering over the years, not only impacting the men in their lives, but their loved ones, um, it contributes to you know, numerous social prob uh, problems. You know, again, from our jails are filled with men who've experienced trauma as children. Uh, we know more now than ever before, addictions is fundamentally an expression of um, emotional injury of children. We could go on, but the, the social cost of that. So really it's the, the suffering manifests itself in many different like negative ways on the actual victim and also the people around them. Yeah, I think, I think we could easily conclude that. Are there, for, for the men who are incarcerated and who are victims, are there any resources for them? Uh, I would say generally not. Mm -hmm. um, the criminal justice system, of course, is in pieces. So if we start talking locally here, mm -hmm. we have uh, the detention center here in Ottawa. Uh, and there are detention centers throughout the, throughout the country. Detention centers, by their nature, are, do not in, provide one iota of programming. We have been on uh, an initiative for the last three years at least to lobby for a trial program of trauma education at the detention center here in Ottawa. It's kind of nowhere. Um, interesting enough, there is outreach to women um, on sexual assault matters at the detention center. Most of the residents of the detention center are male, uh, no programming apart from it. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and some Christian outreach uh, services. Um, that's at the detention center level where the majority of those folks aren't even convicted of a crime, like they're held in remand. There may be pockets of trauma engagement in some of the federal institutions and a couple of the provincial institutions, but it, it is not it is, it is kind of a, a side programming matter 
fundamentally the programming for men in the criminal justice system is kind of relapse prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, skills to hopefully not right. uh, have guys come back into uh, the correctional service. And yet, just like with addictions, more and more we're realizing that trauma is a foundation for a lot of antisocial acting out issues uh, in the community. So, but it's it's just not happening. Right. Which it seems like it would make sense that if we want to lower rates of um, relapse or recidivism, and what you're saying is that trauma can be a factor or could be one of the biggest factors that drives people to do these things. It seems like, uh, it seems like it would make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it defies logic in how it's not being addressed. Yeah. Um, in that regard, and we we will continue to pay a price for that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about? the link between trauma um, and the suffering and and some of these negative behaviors like is it that the person feels like a deep sense of shame and that that is what's manifesting itself in escapism or other negative behaviors Hmm. well um yeah i can speak to, to a couple of ways on that i think if we take the totality of men's experience in terms of being brought up, you know, boys growing up to be men in Western society, we're going to be fundamentally wrestling with two issues. Or men, men, and men, men will fundamentally wrestle with two issues in their lives. One is um, inherent shame, because so much of the constructs of Western masculinity are unachievable, and yet um, the dictates for the male code is is such that. Um, well, you need to tough it out on your own. You need to become top dog. You need to um, be the aggressor. And in terms of conventional masculinity, you cannot embrace any aspect of femininity in your life if you really want to be a man, nor can you uh, um, encompass any aspect that could be perceived to be homosexual, perceived to be gay, because that that's a part of conventional masculinity either. Mm. So you stack all that up in the lives of boys becoming men, it's unachievable. Um, and when we can't achieve who we think we can be, there's an inherent shame on that. So I'm not even talking about abuse here, I'm just talking about kind of the male condition in a very broad sense of the term. Like shame, I think there's another endemic feature of Western masculinity that is incorporated in the lives of boys and men, and that is grandiosity. So we can't just talk about shame, we also need to talk about how the notions of entitlement are expressed in uh, the lives of men. Um, In a very broad sense, men taking more than their share men getting their needs met first. And, you know, we could look at anything from domestic violence issues to what Me Too is all about to pay differentials in the workplace. There's a fundamental sense of male entitlement. Um, the term grandiosity may be useful in that very broad sense. So, so then we've got, as a kind of background the background in, in, in men's lives of, of these elements of shame and grandiosity. Now, now we can then impose experiences of sexual trauma upon that, where the, um, the impact of the, the trauma will be essentially shame. And shame is considered, in, in, in for folks who've experienced trauma, as being the master emotion. So then we can understand many elements of post-traumatic stress as being shame, an expression of shame. And we know at times, not for all men who've experienced trauma, but for many men who experience trauma, they will rely upon grandiosity as a fail-safe backup, coping mechanism, uh, a way to kind of mask the shame. So we talk about 
elements in programming that we could say is hypermasculinity. Um, how guys will pump themselves up, whether in terms of their ego stance or in terms of their anger, rage, and violence, or even how they connect or don't connect with other men, let alone with women. Mm. So, so then we're really talking about an exaggeration of both the shame response and, for some men, the grandiosity. Mm. Now, not all men who are survivors of trauma end up abusing women or anything like that. That's, but there is a higher percentage than the, than for av the average men who hasn't experienced trauma, so we can't discount that. Mm. I want to talk about something that you, to connect to what you said about um, the masculinization of perpetration and the feminization of victimhood. I think that's what you mm -hmm. said. And then you mentioned the Me Too movement. Um, what impact has the Me Too movement had on your clients or on your, your line of work? Uh, I think we've seen it in two ways. In a kind of across the board way, not just in our trauma programming, I think we're seeing men express more of this upon intake when they first connect, uh, connect with us, that in my relationship or maybe in the workplace, I'm being challenged about how I've seen the world and act in the world, and um, I'm in a bit of a crisis because of that, those messages, pressures, uh, relationship tensions, um, as a result in the workplace, it could be being caught on behavior and being reprimanded. Mm. Um, and I think in, the, in that sense, where the, the one program area that we've seen the most in demand, I think in response to Me Too, has been the emotional integrity. Like how, how, do you live your, how do you live your life, how do you understand yourself, and how do you live your life in relationship to others in a way that holds integrity? Um, I think that's where those guys end up uh, tending to come. And the other element that we see Me Too reverberating in the lives of men are from men who identify as survivors of sexual violence. And that conversation kind of goes like this. As with many trauma survivors, they're, they're, they're highly sensitive to any social discourse on issues of sexual violence. And yet they see that the Me Too movement uh, is fundamentally female-framed. And they see that even though they have the same experiences um, as women, perhaps, that those experiences are discounted and they're being um, shouted down. This is not your, mm. this is not your ticket for identification. Even though the founder of Me Too, and I'm blanking out on her name, but I recently heard her speak yeah. um, uh, at a conference. She, uh, she, her stance, Tamara Burt, um, says essentially, everyone is welcome. This is not a women's movement. This is not a white women's movement. She's a woman of color. Mm. This is everyone who has had this experience. Still, the social discourse, the quote, ownership of this issue, unquote, um, has been, it is a woman's experience, solely women's experience. So, so those men are in some ways uh, re-victimized. They're, they're shut down. They're, yeah. you know, that secondary victimization comes up again. For yeah. Them. It's too bad that there isn't like a, a connection, you know, like that we just forget about the, the lines of male-female for this, you know, that you would think... You would hope that they would see that, okay, we've been through something, we've both been through something terrible, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what your gender is, you know? Um, so that's, that's actually, that's really unfortunate. Um, I wanted to ask about the emotional integrity course. What kind of things would participants learn about? Hmm. Well, let's start off with defining emotional integrity. Mm -hmm. um, on a very simple level, we can say integrity is when our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors in sync with each other. Mm. Um, but we, we, we teach a kind of a three-step model of, of emotional integrity, and this kind of defines a program 
yet it also informs all our services. And that the three steps to emotional integrity are fundamentally this. Excuse me. Um, in relationships, no, I get back up. First step is profound honesty with oneself. Mm -hmm. I like that. <laughs> if you don't have profound honesty, you know, blunt, brutal self-honesty, you, you don't go anywhere in life. Mm. Now, I say, I say that, but because there are many, many people in society that don't have self-honesty. Yeah. But uh, they live, go through life with, you know, one of those things that horses, you know, blinders yes, in their eyes. And, yes. And all that. So even the first step of emotional integrity, we can't take for granted. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll say as a people pleaser, sometimes I, I find that I'm very cognizant of what I think other people want, but I'm not always in touch with what yeah. I want. <laughs> Nicely said. Um, and, you know, people pleasing can be a pattern that we've learned from, you know, from when we were very little. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a big thing. And, well, we're all relational people. We're social beings. Um, where does the true self come into play? That's step one. If you can achieve step, if you can, then you can move on to step two. And step two is you know, fundamentally being responsible for your own behavior, which sounds like horse. So all this is so <laughs> obvious, but it just needs to be said in a certain way. So, well, we're on, we have to take responsibility for our own behavior um, we also have to be responsible for any feeling states we have. We can't put that on there. So I can't say, oh, you, you know, you're pushing my buttons, or you know, that person makes me so mad. Well, no, hold on here. You know, if we really want ownership, then, then we've got to take responsibility for that anger response or uh, how we may act with one person versus another. Um, we can't... Uh, we, we can't do that way of not make, not drawing those connections between self and behavior. Uh, even if you don't know what the hell you're feeling, it's still your responsibility for what the hell you're feeling. Uh, so you need to own that. You can't just slough it off. Yeah. But it, isn't it easier now than ever to ignore what we're feeling? Yeah, I feel yeah. like there's there's so many different things that are vying for our attention now, like the gadgets and mm -hmm. um, I don't know uh, Netflix or what have you. There's so many so many avenues to run away. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, Netflix is an example where you see the social terminology of. Um, Oh, I'm, um, I'm blanking out on the word, but you, when you watch something again and you keep... Oh, uh, binging. Binging. It's like, well, we've got, here we've got a very kind of pathologically influenced term now to describe social behavior. Yes. Um, much like, you know, cell phones and all the distraction that they cause. Now, interesting enough, compulsive behavior is, a, is, a, is one of the core elements of intrusion, which is one of the core elements of post-traumatic stress. So a lot of guys that come into the program are compulsive tech people, compulsive gamblers, compulsive uh, uh, compulsive sex, on and on. And, and we need to then interpret that back to you know, a lens of either you know, trauma, certainly dis-ease in the individual. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. It's more, more now than ever. Mm. So it's not reflectable for us. I'm so curious about how you got here and what what drives you to do this work. I, can I back up? Oh, yes. Because there's a third step. To oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the third step. So let's yes. just get that one out of the way. Okay. Uh, so here's the third step. Now, this only applies to those relationships of significance we have. And it's up to each one of us to define who those significant people are in our life. So, you know, you can think about it. I can think about it. It might be a list of two or be listed 20 people it's up to each one of us to define that um, no one can define it for you, you know, whether you be your partner your kids your family members your neighbors colleagues whatever in those relationships now assuming you've got one and two down right you can't do a third step without the first two then it's useful but not sufficient one steps one and two are useful or not sufficient because step three now means suggests that we've got to close in 
the emotional space that we hold between ourselves and those people who are significant to us. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using my hands here to suggest a closing in physically, but I'm talking more of emotional intimacy, emotional mm-hmm. vulnerability. Um, because many aspects of herself, and I'm going to say for guys, many aspects of her masculine self has, have to transform in order to experience emotional intimacy, emotional vulnerability. Some of our masculinity, that kind of outward mask or guard, have, it has to drop. And so in this quest for emotional integrity can be quite transforming. Hmm. So those are the three steps of emotional integrity. It is very pertinent for men who've experienced victimization and abuse and trauma. But you know, it's the same goal, though, for men who have perpetrated abuse and violence and trauma as well, because it is a value of the human condition, mm. or of a, you know, of a, you know, of a, um, you know, of a life worth living. Uh, so some guys in, in our services will say, you know, that's my goal for leaving here. I want to live that. You know, I want to live a life of emotional integrity, because it really no longer than only. It's not a trauma term. It's not a term for victims or offenders or anyone in between. It is, it is a fundamental goal of, uh, of what one can achieve in life. Mm. So step one is profound honesty with oneself. Yep. Step two. How would you frame step two? Taking in- responsibility for behavior and. That's it. Feeling sense. Taking ownership. And then three is identifying people in your life and actually being vulnerable and getting closer to them. Yeah. Closing the emotional space. Wow. And I really like what you said at the end about how it's not, it's not framed by if you're a victim or if you're a perpetrator. And it makes me think about like, you know, this idea of like, are there good people and are there bad people, you know? And, um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this idea that like, you know, people can heal, right? That's, that's the message that I get from men in healing is that healing is possible. And so is forgiveness, is forgiveness possible? Is, um, absolution possible? Or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. The the notion of forgiveness comes up a fair bit, especially in the, um, abuse recovery program. And it comes up in two ways. One, which I would say is uh, not helpful, and another way that could be helpful. The, the first way we often hear of it is for men who are relatively early in their recovery work. Um, and I think they move to trying to forgive their offenders um, in a way that, I think, in a way that they're hoping can somehow quicken the recovery process. Like, if I can only forgive the person who did this to me, then, then I'm done. I can, I can move on in life. And that's very wishful, it's a very childlike um, expression. So there we kind of coach the men to kind of slow down because there needs to be a lot of self-examination of what has happened to the individual and steps to take in terms of working towards wholeness in life before that question of forgiveness can come forward. So then you see forgiveness coming forward for men who are at the latter stages of their trauma recovery, who've done the work, the real you know, hard, hard uh, emotional exploration of um, oh, what has happened to them, grieve their losses, and are working towards some sort of integration of the experience. And here it's a very individual uh, expression. It's not mandatory, obviously. Some men will move to work towards forgiving the people who have harmed them, um, and they see that as freeing for themselves. Um, And other men just won't be going anywhere near forgiveness, but they don't seem, it's not holding them back either. So it seems like in that sense, a very um, individualistic response um, to work out forgiveness we know that so much of the fundamental work of trauma recovery is working at finding meaning 
from the experience. Um, and I think forgiveness is part of that meaning making for people. So we will certainly engage with men who are exploring forgiveness uh, in the, again, the latter stages of their work. Um, and the other guys will just not go over there, and that seems fine too. Mm. It doesn't seem obligatory to find being a place of recovery to okay. do that stuff. When you say to make meaning, make meaning out of it, what do you mean by that? Well, the, this is a real challenging thing around around meaning making is that when you try to articulate it, there's nothing to say, and this is always a, the experience I have. We either you know in running group programming or even teaching on this. But let's step take a step back. Um, a couple of words that are coming to me. Um, ontology is a study of meaning. Okay, so we we can look at ontology as a discipline of thought. We can look at people who've experienced great trauma in their life, and of course, a classic ontologist. Uh, would be Viktor Frankl, and I don't know if you've read any of his work. He was a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, who um, was uh, arrested in Nazi Germany, really, I think maybe in Austria, uh, but he was sentenced to the um, concentration camps and um, survived the experience. And his reflection is that the people who lived in the concentration camps and the people who didn't live, the distinguishing factor was not that one group received more calories per day. It's that they found, they were able to find meaning in their experience. And the meaning, again, could be very individualistic. It's like, I want to live to the day to see my child again, or I want to you know, go back to where I, you know, my, my, my home, my community. Um, and through that struggle of Figuring out the purpose of living allowed them to experience, you know, hell, allowed them to experience mm -hmm. near death uh, and all that. And so when, when Frankel came out of that, all that experience, he developed a way of, uh, of, a way of therapy, a way of seeing the world that he called logos therapy. And uh, I can't recall the, you know, kind of the root of the word logos, but again, that life spirit message mm. so this is what I can say when I see guys near the end of their graduation and trauma recovery and you know I see guys who um, embrace the quest to live an authentic life to profoundly know themselves um, they develop friendships or, and other relationships that have deep significance to them. Um, for many of them, they embrace, in a very heartfelt manner, um, elements of social justice. These are all would be, we can't say, well, that's all meaning. I mean, they are, it is all meaning, but it's an individual expression of, of all of that. Um, that. That somehow that this hell that they've gone through in their life, you gotta say this carefully, but has ended up with them being in a better place. A life that could be more richer than they would have had if they had not been perpetrated. Now, that on one level, that sounds crazy, right? right. Uh, because we think of people being abused, being hurt, as having scars and, yes. you know, kind of lifelong injuries. And there are there's some elements of that that, that are true. Um, but to hear a fellow speak in that quest for that authentic life, that quest to figure out what his, um, you know, that sealed envelope of his life's instructions, you know, from mm. when he was born, <laughs> you know, that he's now uh, living and trying to actualize that in his life. And that's really sweet. Yeah. And you don't hear that from a lot of people yeah. um, out there. So this, I think, are all reflections of meaning making mm. that we observe, you know, we witness here mm. uh, in the program. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really 
to see a guy go through all that work and you know being in therapy on this issue is is, is truly hell. This is not easy work, but there is those rewards there that we do see. Yeah, it must be. Um, I think that uh, like the pursuit of an authentic life um, is is a valuable pursuit for for anyone. Um, and when I think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the self-actualization being at the apex, you know, I think it's certainly something that I think about, um, you know, as being part of a more fulfilling life or, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, I, I think that's a really valuable pursuit. Um, now this is a piece of Maslow I'm not as, um, that I know of, but I, I, I can't articulate too, more, but too much, but before he died, he talked about a stage beyond self-actualization. That was more of, in trauma, we talk about it as reconnection, but you know, kind of the embracing of the other and embracing of um, the sense of the kind of life spirit. It's beyond the self. Now, that's, I mean, that's really interesting in almost every example of the trauma's, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs finishes at self-actualization. Yes. But there's something that he was working on beyond <laughs> oh, that. Oh, the cherry on top. Yeah, the cherry on top, that more, you know, it probably we could define it maybe more in spiritual terms. Trauma recovery in that you know, latter half, latter stage of trauma recovery, I think is a spiritual journey as well. Mm. How can we talk about meaning making other than in a spiritual way mm. and not that you know this is a religious program in any sort and and whatever but i think trauma recovery is well beyond the psychological in its in its full sense of the word mm-hmm. interesting um you mentioned that uh, this is really difficult work um why do you do this work well, that's a long story then. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll do one version and then I'll do another version okay. for that answer. Um, when I, I've always been interested, even as a kid, in issues of social justice, and and it wasn't, it was you know, at best half baked, but uh, rebellious energy perhaps influenced, not that I was of the hippie generation, but still influenced by that counterculture kind of thinking mm. um, uh, in that regard. And then I ended, psychology was an interest of mine, went from psychology to social work. So there we have the kind of the, the living ideal of the helping professional or the bleeding heart, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so there I was in, in, in graduate school in social work being a, a young guy and the program was quite uh, feminist in its orientation and there was a question, oh, you know, as guys, what's our role in this whole mix? Um, now, social work as an all helping professions, you know, fundamentally it was like 90% women in the class. So, you know, we were, you know, and, and a lot of the social issues we talked about using feminist lens for men being the problem. So that kind of got me interested in men's work. The first five, six years of my career, I, I focused on working with men who were assaultive um, to their partners and devising programming to address that. Um, so, but it got me into that lens of gender, you know, gender gendered engagement uh, and all that. So that that's where I started off professionally. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, you know I was sexually abused as a kid. Um, uh, I started coming to terms with that in my, around the same time, early 20s, uh, much earlier than most guys. Uh, and, of course, I'm doing this work because of my childhood experience. I, I couldn't, you know, I'd be lying if I... Yes, there's no strings from my childhood experience to what I'm doing now. Um, I think, though, we, in our lives, you know, in our in working energies, we find our niche for ourselves that really seems to resonate. Um, and this is a niche area that interests me. It combines the, the psychology, the social justice element. It it connects with to my personal experience. So this is not, you know... I don't talk about my experience with the guys. 
Um, uh, this is not the framing of our model, you know, it's a clinical model, it's not Rick's self-help group personified <laughs> here. Um, but there are, there, I mean, in all our lives, there's so many threads from our past to our present, and that's, that's a big one for me. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, are there, um, are there other, uh, centers or, uh, initiatives that you've seen that you're excited about, um, that are aimed uh, around, that are sort of centered upon this issue? Yeah. I mean, it's a very small sector, so you get to know the folks, um, involved. We, I guess where I would go on that question is talking about our partner organizations. <clears throat> our um, American partner ag agency is called One and Six Inc. Yeah. Um, I do some work for One and Six, both on online service engagement as well as training on clinical matters. Um, their name, of course, is the Stat of Childhood Sexual Abuse of Males, though it also addresses sexual assault. Um, some brilliant initiatives coming out of, uh, of one and six. My favorite is the Bristlecone Project. I don't know if you... No. Um, it's a great site to see. I think there's now 130 names and stories um, on the website. Um, these stories, this initiative was developed by a colleague of mine in the state, Stephen Lusak. And basically it is a means to spread the word to guys that if you had this experience, no need to keep this in silence. And if you speak about it, then you can take steps to live a full life. So these interviews of these 130 men, and I'm, I volunteered as well, um, has a short bio for each man, and whether it's a written bio, and sometimes it's a video clip bio, um, about some part of their life story mm -hmm. of what happened and where they're at now. Um, that is really cool. And it's, uh, it's online, it's, it's online. free? It's free. There's now a DVD based wow. on that. Um, uh, it used to be just started in the States. Uh, David and crew came to Canada, interviewed a number of Canadians. Got a, I'm very proud to say that a number of guys who've graduated from this program are now on the Bristlecone site. Um, and there's men probably from about eight other countries now. Really? Um, yeah, you know, from a guy who, and some of these fellows I know, and it's quite a, you know, wonderful network. Um, but, you know, I, there's a fellow there who was um, sexually assaulted as an adult um, by a gang of soldiers. He was a refugee, political refugee, coming out of the Congo. Um, sexual violence is endemic as mm. uh, a tool of genocide. Um, I can't, you know, and I'm talking here, sexual, not just sexual violence across women, of course that happens, but also it, it can happen to, to males in conflict zones. So it's, it's just a wildly diverse, I mean, still mostly American, uh, but on, on Bristlecone, guys. And there's, there's apparently a, another hundred guys waiting to be interviewed. Yeah. And, of course, it takes some resources to, to film them. Um, so that's really cool. Um, Australia has just gone through a national... In, um, inquiry mm -hmm. on institutional child sexual abuse. Our, our Australian partner agency, Living Well, um, has been at the forefront of that. Um, their website is just filled with resources mm -hmm. uh, to engage men um, and service providers on that. And we have an English partner organization, uh, Survivors Manchester. Um, and they're, I mean, they're, they're doing amazing things. One of the lovely things, and this was an idea started by the Americans called One Blue String. And so, as you know, there are six strings on a guitar. <laughs> and it's a way of distributing the low E string. It's blue. You ask you know, musicians to put on the string as a you know, sign of solidarity and support. And, um, and then through music, it's now a means of public education and awareness. Mm -hmm. So we have done a blue string activity. Well, there's been a few in Canada, but when we ran, um, I used to teach at Algonquin um, College, a course on victimology. And the student um, group 
did a one blue string event at some bar in the market. It was an open mic night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was lovely. We had, you know, a number of musicians. You know, it's uh, mostly college-age crowd. But, you know, open mic, we had about five or six musicians back-to-back on stage, um, all working the one blue string. And um, it was a way of, through music, kind of promoting awareness. So I think there's some really cool ideas being generated by some organizations that have this as their focus. It's still a very small sector, obviously, and um, but it, yeah, the awareness is growing. Yeah. I can point to someone in Afghanistan doing work on this issue. I know the South African agency mm-hmm. that um, is doing pioneering work on this. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to see initiatives grow in, in other countries. Absolutely. And I, I feel just doing um, work in sexual health that the more we talk about things, the less power they have maybe to like, to make people feel like they're alone, you know, to, to bring some of these conversations into the public sphere a little bit more. Um, so I'm really, I'm really heartened to hear that that's, that that's happening. Um, because one thing I was thinking is, you know, um, you know, your center can only serve so many people and what what can men do who maybe don't live in this area or they just, they don't have access to your, to these services? Um, what, what advice would you have for someone who either just, these services are not available to them or they can't access them? Well, it's hard. It's, you can't heal in isolation. Um, that's one of the sayings. Um, in the business, you know, it may be that they can access counseling. Mm. Um, not that counseling is necessarily the be all and end all of all healing. I mean, we heal um, so much through our relationships, um, uh, through community. Um, if the person is so inclined, you know, through faith. Um, we're in the counseling business here, so I tend to think of counseling. I think it so. Yeah, finding even a counselor is better than nothing. Um, it has to be done in relationship to another person. I think that is fundamental to break up out of many of the, the barriers that is created by, by trauma. Mm. Um, I run uh, two groups yeah, each week online for men. I was going to uh, ask about yeah, that. Yeah, through the American uh, Organization 1 and 6. So that's a real interesting experiment in using, you know, electronic platforms as a way of connecting. And no one knows each other's name. Everyone's got a nickname. They know my name. I'm the facilitator, and I work with a, uh, another staffer who moderates the, the platform, um, approves every comment before it's entered into the group. Um, but I, I think there is merit in growth in that regard, even if it's not bricks and mortar. Um, To be able to meet up with someone, I think, who has had a similar experience and the kind of, me too, that kind of, yeah, you, me, you know, like like that kind of connection. And every time that person can verbalize that, I think diminishes the trauma load they're carrying. If you think that for most of those years between age 9 and 45, that the fellow is invariably silent about his experience, barely spending an inordinate amount of psychic energy trying to stuff it away, you know, tuck it in, put it in a box, then every time he can verbalize something, he's not only taking a lot, shifting that psychic energy of repressing that story and diminishing that, but you know, he's building new neural pathways from the stored memory of the experience to now processing it because every time we say something we process it you know we develop stronger links Mm. Um, we know it can shift uh, in terms of how things are processed in the brain and all sorts of really cool experiments around MRI functional MRI machines shows that there is this thing called neuroplasticity and we can change how we think and how we feel and you can be you know have, have incredible uh, triggered reactions, and then they can also fade away with the right attention and time and talk. Uh, 
where we get a big concern is guys who want to read self-help books. And, you know, you could say you could spend your, you know, you could spend a whole year in a phone, phone booth with self-help books <laughs> and you're not going to get closer to healing because you don't learn to heal in isolation. It's got to be, you know, what we're doing right now, mm. which is, you know, honestly sharing eye contact, social connection, affirmation, um, and as you can tell, we're big believers in group work here. So, mm. well, this is really helpful to deal one-on-one -on -one with a therapist on it. When you sit around a room of eight other guys, yeah. and you realize that this experience of it, maybe for most of your life you thought you were the only one, yeah. you know, you're, you're hearing your parts of your life echoed around the circle, uh, I think can contribute to the biggest shift in trauma work, which is the alleviation of shame. Um, the guys invariably are so compassionate with each other. Uh, it's relatively, yeah, it's quite breathtaking at times. And yeah, yeah, you two, uh, you know, I got your back, friend, or you're calling each other brother. You know, it's really sweet. And then, but I think the when the penny really drops for the guys is when they realize, well, why the hell am I so supportive and compassionate to all these other guys? but I'm not this way to myself. And when that strikes them in a very you know, deep way, I think that is the, the best remedy to re resolving shame. Mm -hmm. That a sense of, you know, as a victim, whatever, you know, you're damaged, you're a loser, you're, 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 you're fundamentally messed up. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, essentially trauma recovery is shame recovery. I think in a very profound way. I, I believe one in six works with the U.S. military. Is that still the case? Yeah. Okay. And have you actually been in, in the U.S. doing some of that training yourself? Yeah, I've managed now to provide training to all branches of service in the States. Okay. Do you find that there's something unique about that specific contents, uh, context? Well, it, it, it is unique, just as much as you know, any social institution, you know, the church or Boy yeah. Scouts. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, everyone has a unique sense to it. Um, a couple things. One is it was the U.S. military of all places, you know, of all the gin joints in the world. It was U.S. military that announced, um, and I don't know how many years back, um, not too long ago, that more men are sexually assaulted in the military than women are. Now, that was... That's, wow. That was pretty fundamentally big news. Now, statistically speaking, there are, of course, men, more men work in the military. Right. So that's not saying on a percentage basis, women are still more at risk, mm. uh, depending how we define sexual assault than men are, but you know, the raw numbers are. So that by itself, you know, the U.S. military did that before any other institution of that size. So mm. kudos to them for bringing it out of the closet in that official way. Mm -hmm. You know, in the last you know, eight years or whatever. Um, certainly, though, what we know of military populations, whether it be Canada or the U.S., research is suggesting that there is twice the incidence of child sexual abuse in military populations than in civilian populations. Really? Now, that's, a, that, that's not one at first flush. That's a hard one to get your head around. Like, how the hell is it? What, what's a correlation now? This is before they, you know, before they sign up, yeah. that they have twice the incidence of sexual assault. And uh, there was an American study and there was also a Canadian study, almost at the same time, almost identical research. But we know that people who maybe are drawn to the military as a profession, well, maybe they're trying, they're, they're leaving bad situations. Mm. And of course, the military is a life, right? Yeah. And military life, a lot of people refer to it as family. Mm. It involves many pro-social qualities. That's also pretty appealing if you've been abused. Yeah. Um, of course, with guys, the military life is, you know, the hyper-masculine, you know, embodiment <laughs> of the male code. Yeah. That's pretty desirable if you've been abused as a kid. Yes. So we, we and there, it goes more than that, but there are, you know, these push elements and pull elements. You push away from bad experiences, leaving that home, leaving that community, 
Um, and there are pull elements. You're, you're, you, know, you get pulled towards the military for all these other factors. Mm-hmm. Maybe that explains why there's twice the high rate of child sexual abuse. And then, of course, in military experience, not, not unlike other institutions in society, there's endemic sexual assault and hazing. You were witnessing so much of that just recently in hockey, yeah. um, at least provincially in, in stories of ex-NHL players. Um, but yeah, there is a lot. And in military life, there's uh, you know, a lot of heavy drinking, a lot of being away from the context of family, mm-hmm. being more vulnerability. You know, when you're, you're, on, you're on a mission, you're away from your family, there's this hard partying, socialization going on there. Mm. So so that's also a factor mm. uh, that helps us understand sexual violence of all genders in the military. Really? I'm just thinking about what you said earlier on about how the average age that this happens is 9 or 10, and then many years kind of go by. And I'm just, I know that one of the things that Men in Healing does is train service providers. Correct. And I'm wondering, you know, how are we doing in Canada um, in terms of our capacity? Like um, the people who are around these kids, you know, the teachers and the coaches, you know, um, how are we doing? I'm probably not the best person to talk about primary prevention, which yeah. is working at that level of, of um, you know, those around kids. I think, I think as society, we're, we, we believe we're, becoming more trauma sensitive, and that's a good thing. That doesn't necessarily mean trauma competent uh, in our engagements. Um, so yeah, we could even have a debate, is there less child sexual abuse going on in society or more? And there's some research to suggest that there, there, there are lesser rates. Um, and yet we know that there are so many new crimes being committed, uh, you know, through Cell phones, mm. you know, so the whole sexting thing, yeah. um, which is a crime, is uh, never was a crime 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we've got these new areas of criminal activity that are, would, you know, be considered child sexual abuse that we didn't have before. So I don't think we really know fundamentally how we're doing um, overall. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, like... Do you think that, um, what kind of impact do you think that uh, the media has, um, media, pornography, um, celebrities, um, like maybe politicians, do you think, do you think that that um, can uh, push someone to either feel that it's okay to do this to someone else. Just wanted to get your take on that. My thought would be that violence is a highly complex, multifactorial behavior. Mm. We can't just go to one or two or three elements to understand why someone would um, offend or not offend. That being said, I think the whole notion of offending behavior of whatever act of uh, crime we want to consider fundamentally means um, a lack of empathy. So, um, well, we could all say we all have the potential of violence, and I believe that. well, even though you know we all our situations were cut off on the Queensway or you know <laughs> situations like that, only some of us will act in a certain way, and and perhaps the biggest barrier between those who commit acts of violence and those who do not is empathy. So empathy is our social protection. Hmm. Um, now. We could take uh, a group of offenders, you know, and, and I, I know the population of men who commit domestic violence. Right. And we can look at how they present. And they present, they've got emotional dysregulation up the yin-yang, right? It's just, they're volatile, emotionally volatile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, but, you know, we could take 
trauma survivors, non-offending trauma survivors, and you know what? They have emotional dysregulation up the yin-yang as well. So again, we can't think of victims over here and offenders over here because they look quite the same in terms of their expression. There is some thinking, and I think there's great validity to it, is that maybe the barrier, the distinction between the two is degree of empathy. Now, if that's true, Mm. if that is like, you know, fundamentally true, then I think that's room for optimism because we can we can vary our empathy load quite easily. We could be watching right now uh, a video of uh, puppies playing or kittens drinking milk or <laughs> babies gurgling. Yeah. And we could measure our empathy scales before we watch the video mm-hmm. and measure them after we watch the video and your empathy and my empathy would, would go up. It is that variable. Wow. So that, to me, is hopeful news. I think for, for those guys who've had a, you know, troubled children at a childhood, and most men who are convicted of domestic violence certainly are from that background. I'm not saying they're sexually abused, but bad stuff went down when they were kids. Mm-hmm. They saw violence between mom and dad. They, they, were, they were physically abused themselves. They, they, were, they experienced... Uh, insecure attachment, um, neglect. Um, we know that you can have a kind of a functioning survivor guy and then that person put him in the right situation, he will have an empathy drop. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really intriguing then. What creates empathy drops? Someone who's fundamentally pro-social but then has an anti-social expression. Mm-hmm. So there's more and more ideas, thinking behind trying to use a trauma lens to understand uh, violent behavior. It sounds like fascinating work. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued with applying the psychological concepts to the populations that we serve and then applying the stories of the guys back to trying to inform on how we should be thinking of um, a behavior like that. And it's a different way of reframing um, the issue as opposed to just... um, like penalization, you know, because if we if we look at it as, th- as though like okay, so empathy is a ma- is a factor in whether people uh, choose to choose to do uh, commit like a crime, then is something like uh, harsher punishments even a deterrent? Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, something that crossed my mind right. when you right. were speaking. Yeah, I mean, punishment by itself is not terribly useful mm-hmm. in many respects it's going to be um, reinforcing mm-hmm. the initial response it's certainly not modeling behavior that we uh, would like it to be considered so no there's a fundamental problem there mm. and yet you know if we talk about shame being the, the kicker then you know, one theorist talks about the shame rage spiral and as in a way of understanding that having a shame load being shame-prone, which trauma survivors inherently are, shame is the most horrible emotion we can all experience. Mm. Uh, these guys carry it around with them because of their mm. childhood experiences. Now, keeping in mind we're talking about guys too, so there's male code jazz about you know, all what we talked about before. That maybe in a situation of conflict, say a domestic situation, and there's an argument between the couple, you know, Coffee is too strong, too weak, it doesn't matter. That through conflict, because of their past experience, they're going to be, that shame load is going to increase exponentially mm. in the conflict. And so, yeah, voices are raised, and that shame load is going to build and build. And the most horrible emotion we can all experience, and the way well, we, when we feel shame, we want to disappear mm. physically or psychologically. That's how we handle shame as people. Does it reach a certain point in the conflict that then the rage that the person expresses is a shame-free holiday? That that sense of badness, which shame is about, hits a certain point where there's a psychological projection on the other, the partner, and now all the badness that that individual is feeling is now the partner. He or she or they are the epitome of all badness, and by in that moment, it gives them the right, you know, the right, quote, 
they, 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 they can do what they want to the partner because the partner is fundamentally bad and they're relatively in the good. Mm. And that is referred to as a shame-free holiday in a broader concept called the shame-rage spiral. Mm. It sounds like, a, like protecting oneself by saying, like, listen, I'm walking around with this, this shame all the time and now this is amplified by this situation and I just don't want to take anymore. So then it projects itself outwards. All outwards, yeah. <sighs> and there's such a relief for that minutes, seconds, minutes of that experience. Mm. Not unlike road rage. Mm. Yeah, this is a guy who just cut me off. It's the epitome of all badness. I am going to teach him a lesson, and I can teach him a lesson because he's the one in bad. I'm in the good. I'm entitled to do that. Yeah. Zero empathy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's that empathy drop there. But it only lasts for you know, a short period of time. Yes. And then, oh, my God, you know, whether it be the guy just hit his partner or the guy, the road rager, you know, the incredible consequences. The shame load is going to skyrocket. Yeah. They just realize they just hit the person they love. Mm. Um, and then they're doing all these steps uh, to try to diminish shame. Mm. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I'll go for therapy. Uh, you know, here are gifts and shiny things. Yes. You know, and of course, it's a cycle. So it repeats. Is this just uh, applicable to your client base or this is sort of applicable to most people? Well, I, I speak of this because it's a trauma-informed lens to understanding violence. Okay. Um, so, so it's not just the guys here. I mean, we mm-hmm. utilize these concepts in our, yeah. in our programming. Um, it's going to be for other people to talk about this as applied to women. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, my, my, my focus, my expertise is working with guys. So yeah. that's what it'll take other folks to talk about how this applies to women. Yeah. Rick, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've learned so much, mm. and I really want to thank you for your your candor, for your time. Um, how can people find you? We'll put links to okay. um, the Bristlecone Project and uh, also to your website in the show notes, but uh, it's menandhealing.ca. .ca. .ca, and uh, they can learn more about the work that you do. So. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure. You're welcome. It was a great chat. <laughs> okay.